0: Section 2 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 2. Robert Owen. Part 2. On one of his trips to Glasgow to sell goods, he met a daughter of David Dale, a mill-owner who was in active competition with him. Dale made a fine yarn, too. The girl had heard of Owen. They met as enemies, a very good way to begin an acquaintance. It was nature's old, old game of stamen, pistol, and pollen that fertilizes the world of business, betterment, and beauty. They quarreled you are the man who puts your name on the package yes and yet you own no mill true but never mind you certainly are proud of your name i am wouldn't you be not of yours then they stared at each other in defiance to relieve the tension mr owen proposed a stroll they took a walk through the park and discovered that they were both interested in social reform David Dale owned the mills at New Lanark, a most picturesque site. He was trying to carry on a big business so as to make money and help the workers. He was doing neither because his investment in the plant had consumed too much of his working capital. They discussed the issue until 11.45 by the clock. The girl knew business and knew society, the latter she had no use for. The next day they met again. And quite accidentally found themselves engaged, neither of them knew how. It was very embarrassing. How could they break the news to papa Dale? They devised a way. It was this Robert Owen was to go and offer to buy Mr Dale's mills. Owen went over to Lanark and called on Mr Dale and told him he wanted to buy his business. Mr Dale looked at the boy and smiled. Owen was twenty-seven but appeared twenty being beardless slight and fair-haired the youth said he could get all the money that was needed they sparred for a time neither side naming figures it being about noontime mr dale asked young mr owen to go over to his house to lunch mr dale was a widower but his daughter kept the house mr dale introduced mr owen to miss dale the young folks played their parts with a coolness that would have delighted john drew and would have been suspicious to anybody but a fussy old mill owner finally as the crumbs were being brushed from the rich man's table mr dale fixed on the sum of sixty thousand pounds for his property owen was satisfied and named as terms three thousand pounds and interest each year for twenty years touching the young lady's toe with his own under the table mr dale agreed mr owen had the money to make the first payment the papers were drawn up the deal was closed all but the difficult part this was done by rushing the enemy in his library after a good meal it keeps the business in the family you see said the girl on her knees pouting prettily the point was gained and when robert owen a few weeks later came to new lanark to take possession of the property he did as much for the girl so they were married and lived happily ever after. Robert Owen took up his work at New Lanark with all the enthusiasm that hope, youth and love could bring to bear. Mr Dale had carried the flag as far to the front as he thought it could be safely carried, that is to say, as far as he was able to carry it. Owen had his work cut out for him. The workers were mostly lowland Scotch, "'and spoke in an almost different language from Owen. "'They looked upon him with suspicion. "'The place had been sold, and they had gone with it. "'How were they to be treated? "'Were wages to be lowered and hours extended? "'Probably. "'Pilfering had been reduced to a system, "'and to get the start of the soft-hearted owner "'was considered smart. "'Mr. Dale had tried to have a school, "'and to this end had hired an elderly Irishman, Who gave hard lessons and a taste of the birch to children who had exhausted themselves in the mills and had no zest for learning. Mr Dale had taken on more than two hundred pauper children from the workhouses and these were a sore trial to him. Owen's first move was to reduce the working hours from twelve to ten hours. Indeed he was the first mill owner to adopt the ten-hour plan. He improved the sanitary arrangements put in shower baths, and took a personal interest in the diet of his little wards, often dining with them. A special school building was erected at a cost of $30,000. This was both a day and a night school. It also took children of one year old and over, in order to relieve mothers who worked in the mills. The little mothers, often only four or five years old, took care of babies a year old and younger, all day. Owen instructed his teachers never to scold or to punish by inflicting physical pain. His was the first school in Christendom to abolish the rod. His plan anticipated the kindergarten and the creche. He called mothers' meetings and tried to show the uselessness of scolding and beating, because to do these things was really to teach the children to do them. He abolished the sale of strong drink in New Lanark, Model houses were erected, gardens planted, and prizes given for the raising of flowers. In order not to pauperize his people, Owen had them pay a slight tuition for the care of the children, and there was a small tax levied to buy flower seeds. In the school building was a dance hall and an auditorium. At one time, the supply of raw cotton was cut off for four months, During this time, Owen paid his people full wages, insisted that they should all, old and young, go to school for two hours a day, and also work two hours a day at tree planting, grading, and gardening. During this period of idleness, he paid out £7,000 in wages. This was done to keep the workmen from wandering away. It need not be imagined that Owen did not have other cares besides those of social betterment. Much of the machinery in the mills was worn and becoming obsolete. To replace this, he borrowed a $100,000. Then he reorganized his business as a stock company and sold shares to several London merchants with whom he dealt. He interested Jeremy Bentham, the great jurist and humanitarian and Bentham proved his faith by buying stock in the new Lanark Company. Joseph Lancaster, the Quaker, a mill owner and philanthropist, did the same. Owen paid a dividend of 5% on his shares. A surplus was also set aside to pay dividends in case of a setback, but beyond this the money was invested in bettering the environment of his people. New Lanark had been running fourteen years under Owen's management. It had attracted the attention of the civilised world. The Grand Duke Nicholas, afterwards the Tsar, spent a month with Owen, studying his methods. The Dukes of Kent, Sussex, Bedford and Portland, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Bishops of London, Peterborough and Carlisle, the Marquis of Huntley, Lords Grosvenor, Carnarvon, granville westmoreland shaftesbury and manners general sir thomas Dice and general brown ricardo de Cresbny, wilberforce joseph butterworth and sir francis Baring, all visited new lanark writers preachers doctors in fact almost every man of intellect and worth in the kingdom knew of robert owen and his wonderful work at new lanark "'Sir Robert Peel had been to New Lanark "'and had gone back home "'and issued an official bulletin "'inviting mill-owners to study "'and pattern after the system. "'The House of Commons asked Owen to appear "'and explain his plan for abolishing poverty "'from the kingdom. "'He was invited to lecture in many cities. "'He issued a general call to all mill-owners in the kingdom "'to cooperate with him in banishing ignorance and poverty.' but to a great degree owen worked alone and New lanark was a curiosity most mill towns had long rows of dingy tenements all alike guiltless of paint with not a flower bed or tree to mitigate the unloveliness of the scene down there in the dirt and squalor lived the working folks while away up on the hillside surrounded by a vast park with stables kennels and conservatories resided the owner Owen lived with his people, and the 150 acres that made up the village of New Lanark contained a happy, healthy, and prosperous population of about 2,000 people. There was neither pauperism nor disease, neither gamblers nor drunkards. All worked and all went to school. It was an object lesson of thrift and beauty. Visitors came from all over Europe, often hundreds a day could not this example be extended indefinitely so that hundreds of such villages should grow instead of only one there could there can and there will be but the people must evolve their own ideal environment and not have to have it supplied for them by owen's strength of purpose he kept the village ideal but he failed to evolve an ideal people all around were unideal surroundings and the people came and went Strong drink was to be had only a few miles away. To have an ideal village, it must be located in an ideal country. Owen called on the clergy to unite with him in bringing about an ideal material environment. He said that good water, sewerage and trees and flowers worked a better spiritual condition. They replied by calling him a materialist. He admitted that he worked for a material good, his followers added to his troubles by comparing his work with that of the clergy round about where vice poverty and strong drink grouped themselves about a steeple upon which was a cross of gold to which labour was nailed A simile to be used later by a great orator with profit owen was a unitarian with a quaker bias any clergyman was welcome to come to new lanark it was a free platform a few preachers accepted the invitation, with the intent to convert Robert Owen to their particular cause. New Lanark was pointed out all over England as a godless town. The bishops issued a general address to all rectors and curates, warning them against any system of morals that does away with God and his son, Jesus Christ, fixing its salvation on flower beds and ragged schools. New Lanark was making money because it was producing goods the world wanted, but its workers were taboo in respectable society, and priestly hands were held aloft in pretended horror whenever the name of Robert Owen, or the word socialism, was used. Owen refused to employ child labour, and issued a book directing the attention of society to this deadly traffic in human beings. The parents, the clergy and the other mill owners combined against him and he was denounced by press and pulpit. He began to look around for a better environment for an ideal community. His gaze was turned toward America. Robert Owen's plan for abolishing vice and poverty was simply to set the people to work under ideal conditions and then allow them time enough for recreation and mental exercise so that thrift might follow farming. In reply to the argument that the workman should evolve his own standard of life, independent of his employer, Owen said that the mill, with its vast aggregation of hands, was an artificial condition. The invention, ingenuity and enterprise that evolved the mill were exceptional. The operators, for the most part, lacked this constructive genius, the proof of which lay in the very fact that they were operators. To take advantage of their limitations, disrupt their natural and accustomed mode of life, and then throw the blame back upon them for not evolving a new and better environment, was neither reasonable nor right. The same constructive genius that built the mill and operated it should be actively interested in the welfare of the people who worked in the mill. To this end, there should be an ideal village adjacent to every great mill. This village should afford at least a half an acre of ground for every family. In the way of economy, one building should house a thousand people. It should be built in the form of a parallelogram and contain co-operative kitchens, dining rooms, libraries, art galleries and gymnasia. It should be, in fact, a great university not unlike the great collection of schools at Oxford or Cambridge. All would be workers, all would be students. The villages should be under the general supervision of the government in order to secure stability and permanency. If the mill management failed, the government should continue the business, because even if the government lost money in the venture at times, this was better than always to be building jails, prisons, insane asylums, arms houses and hospitals in sections where there were no mills or factories the government would construct both mills and villages to the intent that idleness and ignorance might be without excuse to this end owen would ask all landowners or holders of estates of a thousand acres or more to set apart one tenth of their land for ideal villages and cooperative mills to be managed by the government As proof that his plans were feasible, Owen pointed to New Lanark and invited investigation. Among others who answered the invitation was Henry Hayes, cashier of the Bank of England. Hayes reported that New Lanark had the look of a place that had taken a century to evolve, and in his mind the nation could not do better than to follow the example of Owen. He then added, if the clergy nobility and mill-owners will adopt the general scientific method proposed by mr owen for the abolition of poverty ignorance and crime it will be the greatest step of progress ever seen in the history of the world in proposing that the clergy nobility and mill-owners should unite for the good of mankind mr hayes was not guilty of subtle humour or ironical suggestion he was an honest and sincere man who had been exposed to the contagious enthusiasm of Mr. Owen. Owen was fifty-seven years of age, practical man that he was, before he realised that the clergy, the nobility, and the rich mill-owners had already entered into an unconscious pact to let mankind go to Gehenna, just so long as the honours, emoluments, and dividends were preserved. That is to say, the solicitation of the Church is not and never has been for the welfare of the people. It is for the welfare of the church for which churchmen fight. All persecution turns on this point. If the stability of the church is threatened, the churchmen awake and cry, To arms! In this respect, the church, the nobility, and vested capital have everything in common. They want perpetuity and security. They seek safety all of the big joint stock companies had in their directorates members of the nobility and the clergy. The bishops held vast estates. They were lords. Robert Owen did not represent either the church or the nobility. He was a very exceptional and unique product. He was a working man who had become a philanthropic capitalist. He was a lover of humanity "'filled with a holy zeal to better the condition of the labourer. "'The mills at New Lanark were making money, "'but the shareholders in London were not satisfied with their dividends. "'They considered Owen's plans for educating the workmen chimerical. "'In one respect they knew that Owen was sane. "'He could take the raw stock and produce the quality of goods "'that had a market value. "'He had trained up a valuable and skilled force of foremen and workers.' things were prosperous and would be more so if owen would only cease dreaming dreams and devote himself to the commercial end of the game if he would not do this then he must buy their stock or sell them a controlling interest of his own he chose the latter in eighteen hundred twenty five when he was fifty five years old he sailed for america he gave lectures in new york boston philadelphia and washington on his new order of economics he was listened to with profound attention at washington he was the guest of the president and on invitation addressed a joint session of the senate and the house setting forth his arguments for socialism the moravians at Bethlehem, pennsylvania had founded their colony as early as seventeen hundred twenty the zoharites the economites the separatists the shakers and the rapites had been in existence and maintained successful communities for a score of years robert owen visited these various colonies and saw that they were all prosperous there was neither sickness vice poverty drunkenness nor disease to be found among them he became more and more convinced that the demands of an advancing civilization would certainly be cooperative in nature Chance might unhorse the individual, but with a community the element of chance was eliminated. He laid it down as a maxim, evolved from his study, observation and experience, that the community that exists for three years is a success. That no industrial community had ever endured for three years, save as it was founded on a religious concept, was a fact that he overlooked. Also, he failed to see that the second generation of communists did not coalesce and as a result that 33 years was the age limit for even a successful community and that, if it still survived, it was because it was reorganised under a strong and dominant leadership. Communists or socialists are of two classes, those who wish to give and those who wish to get. When 51% of the people in a community are filled with a desire to give, socialism will be a success. Perhaps the most successful social experiment in America was the Oneida community, but next to this was the Harmionites founded by George Rapp. The Harmonites founded Harmony, Indiana in 1814. They moved from Pennsylvania and had been located at their present site for eleven years they owned thirty thousand of acres of splendid land at the junction of the wabash and ohio rivers they had built more than a hundred houses and had barns stores a church a hall a sawmill a hotel and a woollen factory now when owen went to pittsburgh he floated down the ohio to cincinnati and then on to harmony He was graciously received, and was delighted with all he saw and heard. Owen saw the success of the woollen mill, and declared that to bring cotton up by steamboat from the south would be easy. He would found cotton mills, and here new Lanark should bloom again, only on an increased scale. Would the Rappites sell? Yes, they wanted to move back to Pennsylvania, where there were other groups of similar faith. Their place, they figured, was worth $250,000. Owen made an offer of $150,000, which, to his surprise, was quietly accepted. It was a quick deal. The Rappites moved out and the Owenites moved in. Just across the Ohio River, they founded the town of Owensboro. Then Owen went back to England and sent over about 300 of his people, including his own son, ROBERT DALE OWEN Robert Owen had large interests in England, and new harmony on the banks of the Wabash was incidental. Robert Dale Owen was then 25 years old. He was a philosopher, not an economist, and since the place lacked a business head, dissensions arose. Let someone else tell how quickly a community can evaporate when it lacks the cement of religious oneness. For the first few weeks, all entered into the new system with a will. Service was the order of the day. Men who seldom or never before laboured with their hands devoted themselves to agriculture and the mechanical arts with a zeal which was at least commendable, though not always well directed. Ministers of the gospel guided the plough and called swine to their corn instead of sinners to repentance and let patience have her perfect work over an unruly yoke of oxen, merchants exchanged the yardstick for the rake or pitchfork, and all appeared to labour cheerfully for the common weal. Among the women, there was even more apparent self sacrifice. Those who had seldom seen the inside of their own kitchens went into that of the common eating house, formerly a hotel, and made themselves useful among pots and kettles. Refined young ladies who had been waited upon all their lives took turns in waiting upon others at the table, and several times a week all parties who chose mingled in the social dance in the great dining hall. But notwithstanding the apparent heartiness and cordiality of this auspicious opening, it was in the social atmosphere of the community that the first cloud arose. Self-love was a spirit which could not be exorcised. It whispered to the lowly maidens, whose former position in society had cultivated the spirit of meekness. Thou art as good as the formerly rich and fortunate. Insist upon your equality. It reminded the former favourites of society of their lost superiority, and despite all rules, tinctured their words and actions with airs and conceit. Similar thoughts and feelings soon arose among the men, and though not so soon exhibited, they were none the less deep and strong. Suffice it to say that at the end of three months, three months, the leading minds in the community were compelled to acknowledge to one another that the social life of the community could not be bounded by a single circle. They therefore acquiesced, though reluctantly, to its division into many. But they still hoped, and many of them no doubt believed, that though social equality was a failure, community of property was not. Whether the law of mine and thine is natural or incidental in human character, it soon began to develop its sway. The industrious, the skilful and the strong, saw the product of their labour enjoyed by the indolent, the unskilled, and the improvident, and self-love rose against benevolence. A band of musicians thought their brassy harmony was as necessary to the common happiness as bread and meat and declined to enter the harvest field or the workshop. A lecturer upon natural science insisted upon talking while others worked. Mechanics, whose single day's labour brought two dollars into the common stock, insisted that they should in justice work only half as long as the agriculturist, whose day's work brought but one. Of course, for a while these jealousies were concealed, but soon they began to be expressed it was useless to remind all parties that the common labour of all ministered to the prosperity of the community individual happiness was the law of nature and it could not be obliterated and before a single year had passed this law had scattered the members of that society which had come together so earnestly and under such favourable circumstances and driven them back into the selfish world from which they came The writer of this sketch has since heard the history of that eventful year, reviewed with honesty and earnestness by the best men and most intelligent parties of that unfortunate social experiment. They admitted the favourable circumstances which surrounded its commencement, the intelligence, devotion and earnestness which were brought to the cause by its projectors, and its final total failure. And they rested ever after in the belief that man, though disposed to philanthropy, is essentially selfish and a community of social equality and common property is an impossibility. The loss of two hundred thousand dollars did not dampen the ardour of Robert Owen. He paid up the debts of New Harmony, had the property surveyed and subdivided and then deeded it to his children and immediate relatives and a few of the staunch friends, who have such a lavish and unwise faith in my wisdom, to use his own expression. To give work to the unemployed of England now became his immediate solicitation. He was sixty years old when he inaugurated his first co-operative store, which in fact is the parent of our modern department store. In this store he proposed to buy any useful article or product which any man might make or produce figuring on cost of the raw material and sixpence an hour for labour. This labour was to be paid for in labour script, receivable in payment for anything the man might want to buy. Here we get the labour exchange. Owen proposed that the government should set delinquent men to work instead of sending them to prison. Any man who would work, no matter what he had done, should be made free the government would then pay the man in labour exchange script. Of course, if the government guaranteed the script, it was real money. Otherwise, it was wildcat money, subject to fluctuation and depreciation. Very naturally, the government refused to guarantee this script or to invest in the cooperative stores. To make the script valuable, it had to be issued in the form of a note, redeemable in gold at a certain time the stores were started and many idle men found work in building mills and starting various industries three years passed and some of the script became due it was found to be largely held by saloon-keepers who had accepted it at half price efforts had been constantly made to hurt owen's standing and appreciate the market value of this currency the labour exchange that had issued the script was a corporation and Robert Owen was not individually liable, but he stepped into the breach and paid every penny out of his own purse, saying, "'No man shall ever say that he lost money "'by following my plans.'" Next he founded the cooperative village of Harmony, or Queenswood. The same general plan that he had followed at New Lanark was here carried out, save that he endeavoured to have the mill owned by the workers instead of by outside capital. Through his very able leadership, this new venture continued for ten years and was indeed a school and a workshop. The workers had gardens, flowers, books. There were debates, classes and much intellectual exercise that struck sparks from heads that were once punk. John Tyndall was one of the teachers and also a worker in this mill. Let the fact stand out that Owen discovered Tyndall, a great, divinely human nautilus and sent him sailing down the tides of time at eighty years of age owen appeared before the house of commons and read a paper which he had spent a year in preparing the abolition of poverty and crime he held the government responsible for both and said that until the ruling class took up the reform idea and quit their policy of palliation society would wander in the wilderness To gain the promised land, we must all move together in a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. He was listened to with profound respect, and a vote of thanks tendered him. But his speech never reached the public printer. Robert Dale Owen became a naturalized citizen of the United States, and for several years was a member of Congress. And at the time of the death of his father was our minister to Italy, having been appointed by President Pierce. He was in England at the time of the passing of Robert Owen, and announced the fact to the family at New Harmony, Indiana, in the following letter. Newtown, Wales, November seventeenth, 1858 It is all over. Our dear father passed away this morning, at a quarter before seven, as quietly and gently "'as if he had been falling asleep. "'There was not the least struggle, "'not the contraction of a limb or a muscle, "'not an expression of pain on his face. "'His breathing stopped so gradually that, "'even as I held his hand, "'I could scarcely tell the moment when he no longer lived. "'His last words, distinctly pronounced "'about twenty minutes before his death, were, "'Relief has come.' End of section 2